Merry Christmas. Um, here's the idea. We're not going to, I realize it's like a, it's like a powder keg. Is that a thing, Michael? Yeah, it's a literary device as far as I know. Maybe not even a real thing. But anyway, it feels like a pressure cooker in here because uh, like maybe, you know, my kid drank uh, hot uh, apple cider prematurely a moment ago. So if you have an incident like that, there's a room <laughs> back there where you can hang out and let kids cry and, you know, work off the pain for a second. I'm just going to talk uh, not long at all. Just give me about 10 minutes of your time. We'll sing a few more songs, eat together, and that'll be it for the evening. Ordinarily on a Sunday night like this, if you've never been here before, if you're new, um, what we do is we open up the scriptures and we unpack the Bible one line at a time and we try to go in uh, really deep and detailed on the theology and historicity um, and authorship of the scriptures. Tonight, I just want to talk to you guys a bit about uh, the premise of the Christmas celebration. So just give me about 10 minutes. The way I want to start is by telling you guys a story from my childhood. My earliest childhood memory of experiencing the profound hope of the Christmas season is a memory of dinosaurs with lasers mounted on them. Um, it was 1988. It was a time when toy companies produced Saturday morning cartoons for the sole purpose of selling action figures and vice versa. A beautiful time. One such product line to emerge from this recipe was called Dino Riders. Just look at this ad. Whoever made this is a genius. Look at that. <laughs> and the crown jewel of the Dino Riders collection was, of course, the Tyrannosaurus. He was controlled by the evil Lord Krulos, and the T-Rex came complete with full battle accessories, motorized walking action, and even included Rulon warriors like Bitor and Cobra's Evil. It's like someone scanned my six-year-old mind and just printed what they found on a toy box, and that's it. Uh, I remember wanting that toy so badly, watching the cartoons and the ads on TV, you know, the kids playing outside in an environment that wouldn't ever exist, that was perfect for those toys. And I saw the box in the store and I daydreamed about it and I wrote Santa a letter, all that I told my parents. And there was, as always, a veil between me and the future through which I could not see, I still can't, um, anything other than hazy shapes and possibilities. By then, I had come to terms with the premise during the Christmas season. One vocalizes their desire for a special gift, but ordinarily they do not know if that expressed wish will be granted on Christmas morning. One only hopes. I got the T-Rex, by the way. I loved it. I remember the sight of it beneath the tree in vivid detail. My dad had opened it and put all the battle accessories on it, and it was walking toward me uh, from under the tree. It was amazing. And I realize, just so you know, that in the grand scheme of things and considering where this short talk is going, it's not the most inspiring story of hope come to fruition at Christmas time. But my point is that most of the ways we observe and celebrate Christmas, even the seemingly flippant ones, are built on the idea of anticipatory hope. All of them build to a moment or a day or a time. Some of those traditions have no specific roots in the story of Jesus or church tradition. Decorating homes with evergreen boughs and plants during winter has routinely been practiced by pagans as a reminder that, hey, winter is really, really rough, but spring is coming. So again, there's the idea of hope 
You wait through the dark period for light to come. So pagans would host decorated feasts during winter solstice, again, to steward hope in what came next. After the hard part, spring was coming. But as with many pagan traditions, these things were subsumed into the Christian tradition over time. As Christianity spread throughout Europe, disciples of Jesus took to decorating evergreen trees with apples, believe it or not, to represent the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life, and they called them paradise trees. They did this around the time of the liturgical feast of St. Adam and St. Eve, which was celebrated on December 24th. Uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther apparently was said to have decorated his evergreen tree with candles around the 16th century. Uh, Gales and Celts burned logs decorated with holly and ivy and pine cones to cleanse themselves of the past year and welcome the next one. They also believed that the ashes would help protect against evil spirits and lightning bolts, which seems like a bonus. You might as well get that in there. Today, the Yule log, as far as I can tell, is mostly just that long video that everyone plays on a loop of a fireplace. It zooms in a little and then it zooms out a little and you're like, oh, it's changing, you know. Some of the traditions that many people suspect are pagan in origin actually have roots in the Christian tradition. Hanging stockings for Santa, for example, may be a variation on the older tradition that involved children leaving shoes filled with hay on December 5th, the eve of St. Nicholas' feast day. And in the morning, the kids would discover that St. Nick's donkey ate the hay and exchanged generous St. Nick filled the empty shoes with treats as a thank you. There's another very old story in which St. Nicholas learned of a poor father who was unable to pay his three daughters' dowries. So St. Nicholas dropped gold down a chimney, which landed, you guessed it, in stockings that had been hung to dry by the fireplace. Nothing says Christmas like uh, gold nuggets and dirty, soggy socks, apparently. Really, it doesn't matter a ton. Today, I suspect a number of people who bring an evergreen into their home to honor the Roman god Saturn comes in at about zero total. For the most part, we don't have Christmas dinner parties to celebrate solstice or burn logs to avoid lightning bolts. If you do, knock it off. Don't do it like that. But <laughs> there's a common motif through these traditions, and the motif is anticipation of what comes next. And many of them, the unifying thread is a kind of anticipation born from hope in the same place as pain. The pain of dying crops and unforgiving winters and the hope of a spring as an elusive flicker in the long darkness of the cold. That doesn't mean that ancient Christians stole from pagans in their observance of the Advent season. Hope and pain in the same place is universal to the human experience. And Christmas is a time when we feel both things. And that, I would argue, is at the heart of what it means to celebrate Christmas. Instead, we often feel as if compelled by gravity to one pole or the other, hope without pain pain or pain without hope. For some, the Christmas season must dispel all darkness, blanketing every moment in the warmth of, warmth of family and the electric glow of colored lights. And this season, a friend told me uh, they don't like to watch any Christmas movies that include any sad or upsetting scenes because that isn't Christmassy, they said. With no room to hurt, we become a kind of leering Clark Griswold character, cackling, unable to admit if anything goes wrong for fear of toppling the sparkling illusion of uninterrupted Christmas bliss. And this good feelings only approach to Christmas invades our theology so that we rush to the nativity, a smiling cherub baby Jesus safely nestled in his mother's loving arms, gifts laid at his feet, Christmas. 
And in doing so, we neglect both the scandal and, frankly, the horror that also populate the Christmas story. The scandal that God himself came into the world, not as a hurricane, not as a bronzed warrior, but as a helpless human infant born to poor teenagers surrounded by dirt and flies and manure and livestock. Or the horror that the world around him was so cold and so evil and so hungry for power that countless children were put to death in the hope of ending his rule before it ever came, and Jesus spent his early years as a refugee on the run, in hiding, that the nativity is the climax of anticipation to a very long wait, wrought with pain and even hopelessness, in which God himself seemed distant and even forgotten. But pain does not bear the full weight of the Christmas story. It is, after all, a story of hope. But for some of us, that hope feels distant and unknowable, and what feels concrete is our present suffering. And Christmas, a time of togetherness for other people, reminds us of our loneliness or the awful things done by us or to us. But for thousands of years, for those who follow Jesus, truly observing Christmas is neither an effort to overlook the world's ills nor revel in them. It is a time to hold both in the same trembling hands to remember that we live in a tragic story, yes, but that we believe the story will not end tragically. Our old Christmas carols capture that tension really well. Earlier, Eric sang a hymn penned in 1861, translated from Latin that reads this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, one of the names of Jesus, and ransom your people, Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, present tense, until in the future the Son of God appears, rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Another favorite of mine, this one from 1861, observes this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Before that, in 1849, one more, Edmund Sears wrote, Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong, and man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. And ye, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing, a rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. In Christmas, we recognize that all is not as it should be, but not for long. There is no peace on earth, for hate is strong. We are beneath life's crushing load, and like Israel, we mourn in lonely exile here. All of this because a very long time ago, God created a world and invited humanity to become his partners in ruling it well, but we would rather rule ourselves, the story of humanity, and rather than abandon us, his masterwork, God instead promised a coming king who would rescue humanity from its own evil, and God took up the beginnings of a rescue plan called Israel, but Israel failed as well, and Israel is driven out of their land and into exile 
exile, like the song says, still waiting for the promised king to arrive, and like the scripture we read earlier, save his people from their sins. And by the time we read about Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem and Israel back in her land, she is still in exile. They were desperate and disconnected, and many of them were in Babylon or in Egypt or spread out across the Roman Empire. And whether they were Babylonian or Persian or Greek or Roman, the oppressor continued to reign over Israel. So where was God's promised king? Where was God's anointed kingdom that was said to be coming? We mourn in lonely exile here, a people in need of saving or salvation, to put another way. And the modern churchy reduction of salvation often sounds something like Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, which is true. But for modern American Protestants, salvation becomes mostly about going somewhere else when you die. But for the Hebrew authors of the Bible, salvation was about so much more than going somewhere else post-mortem. Salvation was about the healing of one's mind and one's body and disposition, the renewal of human relationships and animal relationships and even environmental relationships. Salvation was about the healing of the entire cosmos, the world restored to the way God intended and you and I along with it. It was about the restoration of relationships, us with God, us with each other, us with all of creation. This This is the ancient Orthodox traditional understanding of salvation, which is represented from cover to cover of the Bible story. And in the story of Christmas, the authors of the New Testament describe Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And they make the bold claim that Jesus has come to, and I quote, save his people from their sins. Collectively, we've made quite a mess of the world. War and genocide and oppression and poverty and racism and sexism and xenophobia and political corruption and greed and consumerism and factory farms and human trafficking and pollution and slavery and fast fashion and reality television and Instagram and Post Malone. And someone has to do something about all of this. Someone has to save us. We can't do that. That much is abundantly clear. The entire human story, the Bible story, is about how we can't do that. Someone other than us is going to have to do something about this horrible mess we, can't ma- we keep making. And at the center of the story is Jesus of Nazareth. He's not simply a moral teacher with interesting proverbs because our problem isn't lack of information. Our problem is failure. Our hearts are tragically twisted away from the direction of what's right and inclined instead toward self-obsession and self-destruction, a broken world in need of saving and a God who has come to do something about that predicament, hope and pain in the same place. N.T. Wright put it this way, The Christmas story is about God addressing these problems at last from within, coming into our world, his world, and shouldering the burden of authority, coming to deal with the problems of evil, of chaos and violence and oppression in all their horrible forms. And only when we look hard at those promises and come to grips with what they really mean are we able to grasp the real comfort and joy that Christmas does truly provide. Fleming Rutledge says something really similar. She wrote this. In Advent, we don't pretend that we are in the darkness before the birth of Christ. Rather, we take a good, hard look at the darkness we are in now, facing and defining it honestly, so that we will understand with the utmost clarity that our great and holy hope is in Jesus' final, victorious coming. And the beauty of this story is that it is as broad and comprehensive 
as the concept of salvation itself for Israel, for humanity, for the entire world. It's also a deeply specific salvation, meaning in the same way that Jesus comes to heal the cosmos, he comes to heal you. He comes to heal your past, your relationships, your habits, your modes of thinking. If the God of the hard-to-believe, too-good-to-be-true miraculous can rescue all of humanity in a refugee baby born to poor teenagers in a cave with manure and livestock and flies, I believe that he can rescue you from your habits or your memories or your destructive patterns of living. He will save his people from their sins. This includes me and it includes you. To this purpose, Jesus arrives. Unexpected and astoundingly counterintuitive. Every step of the way, a human infant rather than a heavenly warrior, a peasant stonemason in a small obscure village rather than a royal prince in a palace. God is surprising. And to that end, God surprises by reaching for the most hidden, most broken aspects of our stories, whether defaced by our own mistakes or by the horrible things done to us. And he repairs and restores and he brings dead things back to life. He saves his people from their sins. In the end, hope has the final say across the entire cosmos. Amen, King Jesus. Come soon. We are waiting hope and pain in the same place. Let me pray and we'll sing a couple more songs before we celebrate and eat and hang out. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.